Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. Seniors deserve to have a life with respect, dignity, and fulfillment. But as we transition into elderhood, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much needed answers to your questions. Now, here are Phyllis and Rubina. Welcome to Senior Straight Talk, where we present informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. The show, formerly known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy, has been rebranded with expanded content and topics. I'm Phyllis Amon, your host. My co-host, Rubina Chaudhry, is away for a few weeks. Today, I am so thrilled to have as our first guest, Katie Smith Sloan, who is president and CEO of Washington, D.C.-based Leading Age, the national nonprofit providers of aging services, Representing more than 5,000 aging-focused organizations and state partners, the nonprofit addresses critical issues by blending applied research, advocacy, education, and community building. Katie is also Executive Director of Global Aging Network, an international network of leaders worldwide leading initiatives for older adults, and serves on the Board of Directors of the Center for Aging and Brain Health Innovation based in Toronto, Help Age USA, the Long-Term Quality Alliance, and Value First, a group purchasing company serving the aging services field. Katie is also co-chair of Dementia Friendly America, a multi-sector national collaborative with a mission to foster dementia-friendly communities. Well, welcome, Katie. I'm so thrilled to have you here today. How, how are you doing? Well, I'm fine. Thank you, Phyllis, for including me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So for our listeners who don't know about Leading Age, uh, I'd love you to be able to tell them about Leading Age Leading Age's mission and the Global Aging Network. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so Leading Age is a national uh, organization based in Washington, D.C. We've been around for about 60 years, and we were created to uh, be the voice for not-for-profit providers of services for older adults. Um, we have, as Phyllis mentioned, about 5,500 organizations, community-based organizations that are members of Leading Age all across the country. Um, and they range from organizations that provide affordable housing for older adults to home health agencies, hospice, adult day, retirement communities, assisted living, nursing homes, um, and just about every PACE programs, every part of the continuum of services uh, and supports for people as they age. We also have um, 38 wonderful state partners um, who are our eyes and ears at the state level um, advocating for their members' interests, uh, our joint members' interests at the state level. Um, so the mission of Leading Age is to be the trusted voice for aging. Um, and our vision is an America freed from ageism. So we know we are, uh, it's a bold vision. It's aspirational, as visions are. Uh, in many ways, we're punching above our weight, but we feel as if um, ageism and the ageism that, that exists in our country uh, really gets in the way of progress and gets in the way of everything that we do and aspire to do on behalf of older adults. Um, the global You know, I, I'd love to uh, interject, if I may, um, sure. because... 
like many people, um, I talk about that ageism. A lot of people, I don't think they fully understand um, what that really means um, and, and what it really means in our society. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, ageism, like, like all isms, um, is really... Uh, it's it's uh, insidious. It's a bias, uh, discrimination against older adults. It permeates so many aspects of society. Whether it's um, the way Hollywood uh, uh, builds movies, the way on television programs, Madison Avenue products, anti-aging products are definitely ageist, um, and um, are. Are, you know, just it's, it's a bias against age. We are a very youth-oriented culture, um, and uh, and as a result, um, we just don't respect and revere our older adults as we should. I, I couldn't agree more. And um, I talk about the the words and the expressions we use quite a bit. I've talked about it on uh, Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. I've written about it, as have many other people. And what I say is from the time we're young, this is really reinforced by our language, even from a simple phrase like, how old are you? We're always using the word old in our verbiage. Uh, Other cultures... uh, may ask, how many years do you have, or what year are you in? And, and we just are constantly reinforced with that word old. And, and I know for myself, um, when I turned 30, of course, I'm double that now, more than double that now. But, you know, many people would say, you know, I'm over the hill. Or, you know, we refer to older people as you're not a spring chicken. Or even something simple like you look good for your age. People don't realize what the effects really are of statements like that. I, I couldn't agree with you more, and it just becomes so ingrained um, in the way we speak, the language that we use, that I think people just lose sight of what it actually means, what they're saying, and what, how it's being heard by older adults. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Uh, you said something about being a youth-oriented culture and um, all of the products that we have that emphasize youth or reinforce youth, look younger, stay younger. And um, I was remarking on a couple of shows ago that a, an older friend of mine, um, she was actually my undergraduate professor, and we're still friends, and she helps care for her grandchildren, and one of her grandchildren said to her, Nana, you have so many wrinkles, and she said, I've earned these wrinkles, and these wrinkles Mm -hmm. have a wealth of experience uh, that comes along with them. And when she said that to me, I said, you know, I have to kind of reframe my own thinking about that, because we all don't realize how much we're affected by these things. That's exactly right. And I think if we begin to think about the life cycle as opposed to these sort of stark stages of life um, and every, you know, we are evolving. We're aging every day when, from the time we're born and um, just really try to retrain our brains to think differently about um, the life journey. I, I agree. And I, uh, 
I've heard the term elderhood, and I've embraced that. And, and mm-hmm. um, you know, to me, we have childhood, we have adulthood, and then there's elderhood, and that, that is a stage of life. You're, you're really just advancing in your life's journey. Um, and it's in many cultures uh, around the world and many cultures that live in the United States, older people, like you say, they're really revered and treasured and um, my first blog post was called The Wisdom Keepers because these are really the people who, who have the wisdom that they've gained through the years that they've lived. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned nursing homes, and I come from the nursing home space, as you well know, and uh, nursing homes have really been in the news quite a bit, especially in the last few months because of the, uh, the COVID situation. So... Um, but many adults, you know, we've all heard actually how the initial impact of the virus was really on older adults, those that are most vulnerable and frail. And uh, has leading age been involved in, um, in working in that area and advocating in that area? So leading age has been a fierce advocate uh, for the interests and needs of all providers, um, but particularly for nursing home providers for exactly the reasons you described. I mean, those who were initially, what we knew about this virus is that those who were going to be, were were at greatest risk of getting the virus and dying from it were older adults and those with underlying health conditions. And um, those older adults who are frail often live in nursing homes, which are congregate settings. Uh, people living together, um, congregate setting, no no different from a cruise ship, for example, or a dorm. And yet we did not take action early on um, as a government to step in and provide the protection that nursing homes needed for their residents and for their staff. And we've paid the price, sadly. We have paid the price. Absolutely. I read a, um, an AARP statistic that said that uh, recently, I think it was a few weeks ago, though, that 50,000 uh, people who have expired from the virus have been uh, a combination of nursing home residents and healthcare workers. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. really tragic. I was working in uh, nursing homes on a day-to-day basis for a period of time mm-hmm. during the virus, during the high impact of the virus, I should say. In, um, I'm in Connecticut, so I was working in the New York area, so it was during when New York was a hot spot. And certainly there were tremendous issues with protective equipment. Uh, I believe there still are in many places around the country, but no, I experienced absolutely. it firsthand, and it really did put... Of residents and healthcare workers at tremendous risk. Right, right. Yeah, because even, you know, even the best infection control procedures, and all nursing homes have infection control protocols and procedures, um, have not been able to contain this virus. This is something that we've never seen before. And um, without personal protective equipment, um, it is virtually impossible to keep your residents and your staff safe uh, from the virus. So it's, um, it's tragic what has happened and continues to happen. Um, it's not over, 
by any stretch of the ma a, a imagination, nor have we um, really put in place the, what we need in order to uh, prevent more untimely death. So what would you say uh, needs to be put in place to prevent more untimely deaths, especially in nursing homes? Well, I think there's several things, but one of them is um, that we have not, as a, a nation, as uh, particularly at the federal level, prioritized older Americans. And so now we find ourselves five months into the worst pandemic in a century. And, and we have no more than a patchwork plan for protecting older, older lives. So we have the need for PPE, and yes, FEMA did send shipments out, and what our members received were nothing but, for the most part, ragtag supplies from the federal government. Um, we also need access to testing, testing with, with rapid results. Um, and from our point of view, you know, it, this is really about leadership. Um, it's, it's about uh, developing a comprehensive federal plan to secure and deliver the life-saving supplies and resources that providers need to keep people safe, which is testing, PPE, resources, and real support for care workers who are risking their lives every day. And this is what we've been calling out for uh, for months now, um, and, and our calls have gone unanswered. Absolutely. I, uh, healthcare workers uh, in nursing homes, well, I sh I, I'll start by saying that, that many, much of the coverage has focused on hospitals, and, and rightfully so. These are tremendous workers, nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists, and all the support staff in hospitals. But uh, healthcare workers in nursing homes have long been ignored, and I believe uh, their situation in nursing homes during the pandemic has not been addressed uh, adequately or, or actually even addressed at all. And many of these healthcare workers have to uh, work in multiple locations in order to make ends meet because the salaries are are. I don't want to say not what they should be, but they could be better. Let's say because I don't want to, you know kind of go on on a limb with that kind of statement, but they, these are, are very valuable, valued workers, valuable workers, and I don't yep. think that they're valued to the extent that they really should be. The, the CNA, who's the, the kind of the lowest rung of the direct care worker, um, does most of the, li the lion's share of the work, the hardest share of the work, has the most contact with a resident 90% of the time, and they... Oftentimes, well, they are. They're paid the least. They have the least respect. They're valued the least, and uh, they're the ones who are really going from place to place, uh, possibly carrying this virus from place to place, which I, I think only compounded the problem. Well, I think that's true, and I think we learned that early on uh, with the with the situation in Kirkland, where you know when it was discovered, which. Those of us in the field have known for years, but the people that CNAs in particular were working at multiple locations um, and therefore making it harder to contain the virus. Um, that, I think that put a fine point on it. Um, and part of the problem is, um, is, you're right, they've been undervalued and underappreciated forever. Um, they certainly are underpaid for what they do. I like to think of them as high-skilled, low-paid workers. 
because CNAs are, are trained workers doing, as you suggest, um, a, lot of, a lot of tasks. They have to have a lot of competencies in order to be able to do what they do um, in a nursing home. But many of them don't have paid sick leave um, or the kind of health care coverage that allows them to feel like they don't have to come to work if they're feeling sick. Um, so one of the big challenges is you've got, um, and this is true for hospitals as well, you've got three shifts a day. So you've got people coming and going. They're, when they leave at the end of their shift, uh, they may be leaving their soiled PPE behind, but they're going home to their family. Uh, who knows where else they're going? And then they're coming back the next day. And without the ability to test them when they come back to work the next day, there's no way to know whether they are unwittingly bringing that virus into the nursing home. Um, so that is why we absolutely need testing. Um, rapid result, easily administered testing that is paid for um, by the federal government or state governments uh, to cover that, you know, just that point of extreme vulnerability, uh, for, particularly for a nursing home. I agree. Um, I'm doing some oversight work in some facilities um, upstate New York, and uh, for quite a while uh, it was required that you had to have a, a test with negative results within 72 hours, They've moved from that. Now you only have to be tested once a week, and actually you don't, it's not a rapid test, so you may not get those results until however many days later, which as we all know, you could be carrying the virus. You could be positive okay. and not have any symptoms and, and not even know it. So now you're tested and you go to work, and like you said, I mean, that's unconscious spread. Nobody's doing it intentionally, and uh, that's, that's certainly not helping the situation. Just going back to CNAs, you said something that uh, I always think about, which is that they're, un they're the highest paid, un you know, unskilled workers with the lowest pay, or skilled workers with the lowest pay, however you want to look at it. People think of uh, CNAs as unskilled workers. But the reality is uh, CNAs are the eyes and ears of nurses, so they are actually responsible to make very acute um, observations and report them to nursing. So if they see a change in a person's color, condition, mood, attitude, physiology, um, it's up to them to really report that to a nurse who's going to take action. They actually serve a, a very important function, and they're more skilled than people realize. Because those are very acute observations that they have to make. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's really shame on us um, for undervaluing the role that they play uh, and not giving them, not creating a, a, you know, a professional path for them and recognizing them as, as the professionals that they are. Yeah, I agree. Uh, when you're talking about... Um, you know, PPEs also. I mean, in all fairness, nursing homes wouldn't have the, the, um, the number of PPE for the length of time that was required for a pandemic like this. That's, they don't see this level of um, infection. So they, they wouldn't have that necessarily on hand for a situation like this, although that requirement is, 
all likelihood going to change. I think in New York it's now going to be required that they have two months of, of PPE on hand. But there's, always, uh, there's also something about uh, appropriate mask fitting, which I found uh, very interesting because in wearing these masks, you know, there are gaps all over the place, which is a obviously is not providing a seal for your droplets or your, you know, whatever you're emitting, which is how the virus is being spread. So what can you tell our listeners about appropriate mask fitting and the respiratory protection plan in nursing homes? Well, you're, well, you're absolutely right, and there are lots of um, CDC, CMS did training on how to appropriately uh, both put on PPE take PPE off, as well as how to appropriately fit a mask. And I think what happened was when, you know, early on it was N95s were the only masks that were going to be acceptable. Then we realized that we didn't have enough of those in the country. So then we could do surgical masks. We could do cloth masks. None of them are are sort of designed for the same kind of tight fitting, that appropriate mask fitting that really you need to... to um, provide that respiratory protection. So, um, so I think we're still left with more often than not using uh, surgical masks, but, uh, you know, the, the supplies that FEMA sent out also included cloth masks. Um, so I think, you know, just what is an appropriate mask has been, has evolved. You know, CDC's guidance has changed throughout this pandemic. Um, and now they're saying you can reuse masks. So I think, you know, it really points to one of the big challenges for providers all over the country is that, that there is so much um, conflicting guidance. There, it's, it changes a lot. It's different from the feds to the states, sometimes different from states and localities. And it leaves these providers who are really working hard to protect their residents and save lives confused, worried, looking for answers, um, trying to figure out how to meet their local requirements or federal requirements, um, and not being sure how long those requirements will be in place before they're changed. So um, it all, that all comes back to my earlier point about the, really the lack of coordination. Um, it's really a patchwork. Um, what we have in place right now is much more of a patchwork. I agree. Uh- when there is supposed to be uh, instructions or demonstration in uh, donning and doffing, putting on and, and removing uh, mm-hmm. PPE, I have never once um, had that directive given to me, ever, yeah. in any facility I've been in. It's, it's just handed mm-hmm. to me, and um, it's like, here you go. I'm expected to know. I'm not saying I don't, but that's not the point. <laughs> Right. right. There is a very specific way. And if you take uh, the PP off in an in incorrect fashion, you could be infecting yourself or, you know, spreading it further into the air. So those are very right. important um, requirements that really should be, um, I don't want to say enforced, but, but it should be enforced because there should be yeah. some kind of way of ensuring that people are receiving that demonstration and education, and I can tell you just from my own personal experience in the buildings I've been in, I haven't had it. Mm. That doesn't say that there aren't people that aren't doing it. I just haven't experienced it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think people realize that even when you um, touch your mask, you know, you adjust it, you touch it, you you, um, 
adjust the the ear pieces. Uh, you touch it, and then you go to touch something else. That's obviously that's uh, ripe for spreading infection. So that's really important. Um, not only when you're uh, removing it and putting it on, but also when you're wearing it. And and you right. do adjust it because the air that's coming through and it slips down under your nose and a variety of uh, a variety of uh, situations like that. Uh, beyond nursing yeah. homes, what what can you tell us about um, assisted living facilities or the community uh, leading age uh, leading ages initiatives in those areas? Yeah, well, we have been um, equally focused on our members who um, provide assisted living, home health, affordable housing. Um, you know, they have many of the same challenges. Um, the environment is different. And in some cases, the, the um, nature of the resident population is different. People who live in assisted living aren't as, typically aren't as frail as those in a nursing home. And they also have their own apartments. So one of the challenges in a nursing home is that you sometimes have two people to a room. And if one of them is infected, it, it's very hard to keep the other one from not becoming infected. But in assisted living, um, the residents live in their own apartments and you know, that once they stopped allowing visitors, they were really left quite isolated uh, mm -hmm. in their apartments. But it was easier that way, actually, to keep to protect them from uh, getting the virus. The meals could be delivered to their door um, and they could open their door when they wanted to and so there wasn't as much uh, human contact as there is typically in a nursing home. Um, same thing with affordable housing. I mean, those, re those individuals live in their own apartments. They come and go as they wish. It's independent living. Um, and there, isn't, uh, there aren't healthcare professionals uh, around. And yet, you know, they're li it's a communal, even though they're in their own apartments, it's still communal living to some extent. And so many of our members who provide affordable housing took the chairs out of the lobby, for example, so people wouldn't congregate there as they mm -hmm. often do, and they closed down their, you know, that they often have an activity room or a sort of a, a central room where people can um, gather, and they close those down just to mitigate the opportunity to uh, spread the virus because of the lack of social distancing. Um, and... Um, those who live in affordable housing are often frail and, uh, you know, often have underlying health conditions as well, but maybe not as severe as in a nursing home. So I would say, you know, the challenges have been acute across the continuum. There's no question about it. Uh, most adult day programs around the country, for example, have had to close because they mm -hmm. just couldn't manage, uh, figure out how to keep people safe in an adult day uh, program environment. Um, and that, you know, the, those who have relied on adult day during the day, uh, both families and the individual uh, clients, um, that's a huge, huge loss for them because that was a place for social engagement. It was a place for sometimes therapy, um, and it was respite for family members. And so it just, you know, obviously had a snowballing effect on, on individuals and their families. So, um, so the continuum has been hit hard. There is no question. Yeah, before we, um, be well, we're going to go to a, a break in, a, in about a moment, but uh, 
something that you said reminded me of a friend of mine whose mother, a mother and father, were in, a, in an assisted living, and it's just what you said. They, they were isolated, really, in their apartment for about six weeks. And mm-hmm. what this person described to me is that his mother especially was becoming weaker because she didn't mm-hmm. have the opportunity to move about. She lost mobility, and this was, uh, as she lost mobility, obviously she became more sad. She didn't have contact with the people that she used to um, She used to be able to socialize with. But maybe we could talk about that uh, a little bit more when we come back from the break. So we'll be returning to Senior Straight Talk in a few moments. I'm here with Katie Smith-Sloan. Be back in a few. Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high-quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. Rubina Chaudhry is president and founder of Mars Services, an engineering management consulting firm, as well as founder and president of all of Community Services, a 501c3 providing support services to seniors, families, and the community. Olive's Live, Learn, and Thrive programs engage seniors physically, mentally, and socially. Rubina's passion for seniors stems from her experiences as an only child, living miles away from her aging parents who are over 90 years of age. She understands the issues and decisions caregivers face. Visit olivecs.org for further information. In the best of times, nursing home residents suffer from isolation and loneliness. Because of COVID-19, senior residents are missing out on connecting with family and friends. You can change this. Video chats help them stay connected with loved ones. You can help to change a nursing home resident's life. Please help us purchase mobile devices so they can stay connected because senior connections matter. Click the banner on the show page or visit GoFundMe.com now and search for Senior Connections Matter. Connecting seniors through technology to make your donation. You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the hosts at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now, back to Senior Straight Talk. Welcome back to Senior Straight Talk with my guest, Katie Smith-Sloan, CEO of Leading Age. And uh, right before we went to the break, Katie, we were talking about people being isolated in their rooms and what COVID has uh, done uh, for people in assisted livings and also people who attended adult day programs who are now, you know, relegated to being at home. So uh, would you like to talk about that a little bit more? Sure, I'd be happy to. I mean, I think, you know, isolation among older individuals, whether it's in nursing homes or assisted living or even in their own homes during this pandemic has reached, I think, its own pandemic proportions. Um, And I think, uh, many providers have uh, been creatively done work around using televisitation for families and whatnot, but it doesn't 
it, it doesn't replace that human um, face-to-face uh, contact. I, I, I think it's taken its toll on older adults. I think it's taken its toll on family members. We're seeing an enormous amount of depression. Um, and, um, you know, just sort of um, backsliding in terms of, of their health um, conditions just as a result of having so little human contact and it's a, you know it is a dilemma uh, you have, you don't allow visitors for good and valid reasons public health reasons um, and it, this is certainly one of the unintended consequences of it but I think that you know as a as a as a sector, we will face, and we are facing now, a lot of challenges with just mental well-being, both on the part of residents, but also staff and family members as a result of um, the kinds of distance we've had to place between people. I will say that, um, you know, I mentioned that I think our many providers have been become very innovative and uh, creative using technology and finding ways for uh, to connect people with safely, and we're seeing more and more of that, particularly as um, cities and states begin to reopen. Uh, just the challenge of trying to keep residents safe while the rest of the community is opening up, and while families are begging to be able to see their loved ones. So we're seeing, you know, a lot of outdoor tents set up and plexiglass set up, and um, all kinds of creative solutions. And I, you know, I commend. Uh, those providers who are really working hard to try to break down some of these uh, barriers that have been caused because of uh, because of the, of COVID, um, but it's not over yet. So we, we will continue to see these and have to employ these kinds of challenges going forward. Absolutely, I know that CMS. Uh kind of mandated that uh, facilities have uh, as many virtual visits as possible. Of course, uh, facilities may not have an adequate number of, of um, devices, and um, I actually started a GoFundMe campaign to raise money to purchase devices, um, iPads and mobile devices, because sometimes a facility may have two, and they may have you know, uh, upwards of 100 people, so how often can they have a virtual visit? Like you said, there are some uh, providers, I'm sure, are doing a wonderful job and, and more creative than others. I actually just purchased um, the first uh, iPad, I'm proud to say, uh, with, some, with the donations that came into the GoFundMe, a friend of mine has a friend he, uh, who he's been helping to care for for about 30 years, and uh, he, moved, he w- went to the hospital and, and then had to go to a short-term rehabilitation center, and he's the uh, next of contact for that person, and he's the closest uh-huh. person, like within a, a few minutes. And it's been, um, well, the last time I spoke with him, it was 10 days, and he hadn't had any virtual visit. And wow. um, so I, I uh, purchased an iPad with the donation that I have, and I, I think they got it today. So I'm very proud that I, I helped maybe improve the life of one person, so that's a great thing. But uh, as I said earlier, there have been many people who haven't had that, and people especially in like assisted living situations where they have their own apartments and they haven't had the opportunity to walk around and move about. And as we know, uh, isolation can have the effect of smoking. I think it's like um, 
15 cigarettes a day and obviously yeah. contribute to the cognitive decline and weakness and a, a whole host of other issues. So uh, this is a very important area that really... Um, really needs to be addressed. And, and there's something else that you brought up, which is um, that many older adults who went to adult day programs who are now at home, those older, those people who were caring for them looked for that as an opportunity for some respite. So that's a whole other dimension of this that has impacted uh, family caregivers. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. It, you know, it's created an enormous um, responsibility for them. Uh, and, you know, adult day programs in, for many, many families have been absolutely saving graces. Um, so, you know, the hope is we'll figure out a way that adult day programs can begin to open up safely. Um, but I think it's going to take, take a while. Yeah, I agree. So what are some of the uh, other initiatives that Leading Age is, um, is participating in on, on a policy level? Um, so we announced a campaign uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, Act for Older Adults. And um, our campaign is really built around what we are calling five essential actions. It's targeted primarily at the Hill. Um, and we are advocating for urgently needed protections for older adults and staff in publicly and privately funded financed housing, long-term care settings, uh, retirement communities, adult day, home and community-based services, hospice, and home health. And the five actions um, are really meant to, to, to stop this unraveling catastrophe. Um, and provide targeted relief, which includes immediate access to ample and appropriate PPE for all providers who serve older Americans, um, on-demand and fully funded access to accurate and rapid results testing for both older adults and their care providers, um, assurances, and this is what we've been talking about, assurances that states will consider the health and safety of older adults as they reopen, um, and the fourth essential action is funding and support for aging services providers across the continuum. And the lastly, but not last, is ensuring pandemic hero pay, paid sick leave, and healthcare coverage for the heroic frontline workers who are risking their lives serving older people during this, cri this crisis. Um, so our asks are targeted primarily at Congress. Uh, looking to a fourth stimulus bill um, later this summer, and really trying to underscore the incredible toll that this pandemic has taken on providers of all kinds, and they can't survive without additional federal support. Absolutely. I believe there are two... Um Congressman Clyburn, I believe, is heading a subcommittee um, to look into nursing homes. I think the, there's a House Ways and Means Committee that is also looking into some of these areas. Is that correct? Yep, there is. And, yep, and there's a, a bill on the, on the um, Senate side as well. I mean, the House has passed a fourth stimulus bill. The Senate has not yet. Um, and what the House passed included a lot of what we are asking for. Um, but the Senate has not taken action yet. Um, and again, our, our asks go well beyond nursing homes. Hmm. So if listeners wanted to uh, 
express their support uh, or, uh, you know, weigh in on the importance of this, how would they go about doing that? How would you advise listeners to go about doing that? Yep, they would go to the Leading Age website, www.leadingageoneword.org, and uh, right there on the home page is our coronavirus um, our coronavirus resources, and there is a uh, section there on contacting Congress on advocacy. You can just click on there, and you can send a letter to your member of Congress or get their phone number and give them a call. Um, it's We've made it very easy. All that would be important. Clearly, um, yeah. clearly, the more people that do that, the better. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, um, uh, we spend a lot of time on the Hill advocating for the interests of our members and other older adults, um, but there is nothing like the voice of a constituent, the story of a caregiver, the story of a family member um, to really uh, get the attention of lawmakers. So um, I encourage your listeners uh, to take some action. Yes, especially now because we're in an election year, so uh, these are important issues. And the fact that uh, nursing homes aren't in the news so much now because the news cycle has kind of passed by to other things. It, it, this has happened many times with other natural disasters, hurricanes, and, and other situations. So this kind of is no different. Um, however, with spikes of the virus around the country, um, not only will it infiltrate nursing homes again, and I, and I fear that it will, uh, the the whole uh, conversation about nursing homes may resurface again or uh, should resurface, especially since some of these hotspots are in areas where that are retirement areas for older adults, Arizona, mm-hmm. Florida, some warmer climates in the country. So it would be very important for listeners, especially in those areas at this time, uh, Although it's important for listeners all over the country to really weigh in on these uh, on these all important issues, I agree with you. Thank you for saying that. Yep. Uh, so, what are, what are some of the uh, I we you know I mentioned earlier about um, about the your involvement with um, Dementia Friendly America. So, mm-hmm. can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Because I I think that's just a fantastic initiative, and I believe. Um, where I live in Connecticut, Lower Connecticut, Greenwich, they um, did start a program for a dementia-friendly community. So uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? I'd be happy to, yeah. Um, Yeah, Dementia-Friendly America is a a sort of a national movement that started about five years ago, and it grew out of a very successful program initiative in Minnesota called Act on Alzheimer's. Uh, where the state, as part of their Alzheimer's plan, decided that what they were really going to do is focus on community um, grassroots engagement around issues of dementia. And a lot of that is around education, and a lot of it is around providing supports and services to people who are living with dementia and their family members. So there are initiatives like training tellers at banks or first responders, what it actually means to live with dementia, or training, teaching um, uh, 
clerks and in grocery stores, what it, what it is like to live with dementia so that when there's a client that comes, an older woman, for example, who comes to the grocery store and is buying her checking out at the, at the um, checkout counter and is fishing around for something in her purse and can't find it and is getting confused, um, rather than getting impatient, understanding that this may be somebody who is living with dementia and um, through no fault of his or her own and um, being, being more empathetic. Um, so the whole idea is for communities around the country to embrace the notion that we can do better for the, the millions of people who are living with dementia if only we understand what, the, what it's like, walk in their shoes, and be empathetic and put in place um, the kind of training and the kind of supports that may be helpful to, to people. So all over the country, um, communities have declared themselves dementia-friendly. They've done training. Uh, they've put together broad coalitions that include, you know, businesses and universities and churches and synagogues and consumer groups and schools um, to really become more informed together uh, and agree on some action steps that they want to take in their community, what makes sense for them. So whether it's support groups or whether it's, um, you know, programs at libraries or whether it's, you know, working with first responders, um, each community sort of designs its own path based on what makes sense for them. And what's been so gratifying about being part of this, and I'm joined in the leadership of, of Dementia Friendly America with a, a gentleman who is living with dementia um, and is how meaningful it is to those who are living with dementia to understand that people care so much and want, and want to make, it, make their lives better for them for as long as they possibly can. Um, so it's gratifying to see that it's spreading, uh, it's growing. Uh, there are communities all over the country, big and small, sometimes a county, sometimes a city, sometimes a town, and, um, and it's very organic. It's very homegrown, which is, uh, I think, what makes it so successful. Oh, I definitely agree. Um, I believe, I'm trying to remember where it is. Um, I think it was in the south someplace that uh, opened the first uh, dementia-friendly restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, and um, like you said, people don't realize um, when they're speaking with somebody and there is a tendency to get impatient uh, that mm -hmm. it might it might be that it's not like this person is doing this intentionally, uh, but but this is unfortunately the situation that they're in at the moment, and and this is they can't get out of it in an intentional way, is what I'm saying. Um, it's it's very difficult. As I'm saying it, I'm recalling a situation that I was in recently. Uh, observing somebody with somebody who clearly had dementia and it's it's really like touching my heart um, mm -hmm. because you could see the person getting very impatient and and saying things that were so inappropriate and um, I'm sure it made the person feel terrible because they knew they weren't doing this intentionally but they had no other way of negotiating the situation yeah exactly Exactly. And there's so much, you know, it's just, it's lots of little things that we can do, but we need to understand first uh, what dementia is, how it manifests itself, um, 
and how we can be, you know, better neighbors and friends to those who are living with dementia. Um, so I there agree. Is a, and if, if people could think, um, <laughs> and I'm trying to reframe my own thinking and kind of rewire my own brain a little bit, um, just in general, um, we tend not to have patience for many situations. And... Um, So I was just out earlier today, and I was driving behind somebody who was driving so slowly, and I felt, you know, you feel that feeling inside of yourself, that kind of anxiety, and you want to say, come on, hurry up, let's go. (laughs) Why are you driving at 10 miles an hour? And I caught myself. Um, I really caught myself and said to myself, gee, I don't really know who's behind that wheel, and maybe they're doing the best they can, and I'll get to where I'm going in a couple of minutes later. So it's a process. I think we all have, if we're conscious of it, then we could help rewire our own thinking, but it takes being aware, and dementia-friendly communities and the education that it provides, I believe, helps that. I would agree. And um, there is on the Dementia Friendly America website a list of all of the communities who have signed up to be dementia friendly, so, and it's listed by state. So if you want to uh, see if your community is one and there's contact information, uh, if you want to become dementia friendly, there's all kinds of tools and resources on the website to help you get started. Oh, that's terrific to know. Um, so... Well, we talked about aging earlier, and um, I know that global aging is being addressed even in the United Nations. I believe it was this year. I don't know if they actually held the conference because it usually is in April, but it was supposed Mm -hmm. to be the 11th session of the Open-Ended Working Group on Aging. Correct. So global aging is obviously uh, the planet is getting older. Our own society is getting older. Um, I believe by the year 2035, the over 65 population is expected to outnumber the 18 and under population. And people, obviously, we all know are living longer. And uh, we're talking about Alzheimer's and dementia. I believe it's... um, someone is diagnosed with dementia, is it every 66 seconds um, now? I think so, um, in the United States. And so um, all of these issues are are being addressed on a global scale. So what's what's, uh, leading age or or your your other initiatives um, role in that process? Yeah, it's a good question. So the Global Aging Network is an organization that was created about 30 years ago to um, connect providers of services for older adults around the world together with a purpose of really shared learning, shared knowledge, uh, exploring innovation, sharing challenges, looking for solutions. Um, And it has grown from its infancy with just a few countries represented to now now having having a presence in about 60 countries. Um, And we also, the Global Aging Network, has non-consultative status at the United Nations, so we participate in uh, the meetings that are held in the United Nations, except when they're not, like this April. Um, And our focus as a group of NGOs, of non-governmental organizations, that are interested in aging is on a um, human rights convention for older adults addressing issues of ageism, of elder abuse, of rights, respect, dignity, uh, quality of life around the world. 
and uh, we've been at this for several years. It takes a very long time to get something like this through the United Nations. Uh, but there's a lot of passion and purpose behind it. Um, a lot of uh, we're unified in our in our commitment to making it happen, um, and w- reaching out to various missions uh, to get countries on board because. What, the way these things happen at the United Nations is every country has to sign on um, to it. So, so that's a bit, that's a piece of our work. And then the other really is this really important information sharing. So we're um, hosting a webinar series right now with a, an organization in India looking at um, COVID around the world and what the experience of providers has been. Um, and that kind of sharing is essential. Um, because, as you say, every country is aging and at different paces. Some are older than we are now. In fact, we're fairly young compared to uh, Japan or Italy. Um, but we will be there uh, someday so we can all learn from each other and um, the challenges that we face. So it's a very um, dynamic organization. Um, it's, you know, it's... It, just sort of amazing to hear the experiences of South Africa, and then you hear the experiences of Switzerland and Australia and um, Lebanon, and they're all different at some level, but they're all the same. Uh, The differences are really around cultural norms and public policy, but when it comes to the human beings that that we care about, we're all the same. But... uh where we started this uh, conversation about how other cultures view their older people, how would you say that impacts how these other countries are addressing aging in their culture and in their country? Yeah, and it differs a lot um, from country to country, but, you know, there are definitely countries uh, around the world where Older adults are revered, and and still families are living together in multi-generational households, and that is the norm. Um, and then there are other countries like the United States and, and other more developed countries where, um, you know, we're really separate as families, families are separated, and, and um, we don't have that same reverence uh, for our adult population. And... Uh, I think we have a lot to learn from those that have um, held on to what I think we used to have, um, which is this, you know, sense of family uh, and connectedness and respect. Um, But I would also say that every, you know, every country is going through its its aging process differently and trying to figure it out um, how best to, to address some of these issues. Um, so. Yeah, for sure. I, I believe that there are, there are many countries uh, that, uh, that revere their older adults uh, but are now faced with, uh, as we're saying, a burgeoning aging population. And, for instance, in China where a lot of younger people have moved to the cities and taken on roles in uh, jobs in technology and and other manufacturing positions, they've left their older parents um, in in the 
the countryside where they were living before, many of them living on farms. And um, I believe a couple of years ago, China passed um, a law, I think it was in China, that said that uh, people had to uh, be given a time off from work to go visit their older parents mm-hmm. who lived in more remote areas at least once or twice mm-hmm. a year. Yep. Yeah, and so so just think about that. That's, that's that's the case, and just think about that requiring legislating people to visit their parents. Um, you know, just a hundred years ago, we would have been scratching our heads saying what. Um, but but now you're absolutely right, and that's that's true in a lot of countries. Korea, it's true where you know the the jobs are in the city, and um, and that's where younger people go because. They need to. They need those jobs, and, and older people are left in more rural and remote areas and where there really aren't robust services to support them. Um, so that becomes a huge challenge for a country, for a nation, for a society to figure out how do you deliver services um, to people in the communities. I remember being in China and um, probably 10 years ago now, we did a conference in Shanghai, and um, the Minister of Aging for China spoke, and he talked about the fact that the notion of a social worker didn't exist, that job and that uh, career path didn't exist in China. And they were realizing with their growing older population that they needed people who had social workers. So they were going to, you know, as China can, just, you know, find Go, go train 5 million social workers in, in, you know, no time at all. But just the idea that they recognize we have a gap in just our, in, in the skills and the competencies uh, that we need in order to care for an older, increasing older population. Um, so that was, to me, a big aha moment when you sort of realize, wow, things that we just take for granted um, just didn't exist. Yeah, that's how I feel just listening to it. Uh, I, I, like you say, uh, other societies that have never had to deal with this uh, are now faced with this situation uh, just for the reasons that we say. So uh, we're, we're coming to the end. This has been a fascinating conversation for me. I'm sure it has been for our listeners. So is there anything uh, you'd like to add, Katie, or any other resources or contact information for our listeners? Well, I just would encourage you to uh, come to our website. We've got a lot of, of resources, particularly on um, COVID, uh, but a lot of we've got a learning hub with a lot of good education and, and um information there as well. And Phyllis, just thank you for, for caring so much about um, those who live and work in nursing homes and, and other aged care settings. And, um, you know, it's going to take all of us working together uh, to, to make it right for Absolutely. older adults. Absolutely. So, so thanks so much, Katie. And uh, this is Phyllis Amon signing off for Senior Straight Talk. Um, providing informative conversations for seniors as we age. And uh, join us next time when we'll have uh, another guest with more interesting conversations as well. Thanks again, Katie Smith-Sloan. To all of our listeners, stay safe, take care, and stay well. Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. 
Join your hosts, Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms. 